0: It's Monday, September 26. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill joining me in studio investor at large Tim Hansen. Thanks for being here.
1: I've adopted that title. I am going to add it to my LinkedIn profile. Are you going to
0: put it on your business cards? Well, yeah, I'm going to, it's going to be
1: it says going to say investor at large and um, financially engaged Mass affluent professional.
0: <laughs> Those are my new titles. Wow. Yeah. You don't want to put initials after it like you don't want to. map? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just something to kick around. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to take a closer look at what, in God's name, William Sonoma is doing. Uh, Let's start with the news that broke late last week about Yahoo. And if you missed it You know, you're taking a very judgy tone. You know what? You're right. I am taking a judgy (laughs) tone. And we'll let the listeners decide whether or not my judgy tone is warranted. If you missed it, In 2014, Yahoo was hacked. And by hacked, I mean 500 million accounts were compromised. And that would be news in and of itself. But what makes this particularly juicy is that while this happened in 2014, Yahoo, who you may recall was acquired by Verizon earlier this year, uh, they just told, reportedly, they just told Verizon last week. Well, the deal is not done yet, right? The deal is not yet consummated. You don't think at any point along the way, when Verizon was kicking the tires before Verizon became the company to win the bidding, you don't think Yahoo should have come out and said, "Hey, by the way, here's one more little piece of data you might be curious about." It seems material.
1: <laughs> it seemed material for a variety of reasons, um, if only because it it, it calls into question. Just how well Yahoo has their has their stuff together, so to speak. Um, It's unclear. I I I tried to do some background reading to come to the table with some facts here, and it's it's unclear if they're they were being deliberately misleading or um, non or not disclosing information they knew, or if they didn't really know what they knew or didn't know what they didn't know about it all. So I mean, it's somewhere on the lines of between. um, Misleading and incompetent. So ne- neither of those are really positive situ- scenarios for for, for Verizon. Um, you know, I, I, you know, what do they what do they what do they do next? Does it call into question the five billion dollar deal? Probably, probably not. I mean, it probably damages trust between the two companies. But I don't, I don't think Verizon was was buying Yahoo for their unhackability. You know, it's really more of a content deal. So um, y- yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, to the extent. It, it, you know, were Verizon to try to back out, it would certainly be litigated. Um, they probably would not win. But you know, to be perfectly honest, it just it just goes to show what a mess it is over at Yahoo, and it's been a mess for for some time. Uh, I'm shocked that Verizon was willing to pay them five billion dollars or shareholders five billion dollars to take on that mess anyway. Um, you know. You can't put together like a tractor and a jalopy and win a Formula One race. Similarly, you can't take a bunch of like haphazard media assets and go beat Facebook and Google. So, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, what a debacle!
0: I, so, uh, a couple of threads there. One is why did they buy them in the first place? And I think, and we we've talked about this before, if not on this podcast, then certainly in the hallways that there are some assets at Yahoo. Well, look at the in, I, in terms of content and five hundred million users to hack, right? <laughs> Apparently, it's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Um, there's the sheer number of members they have, and then there's you know there are some assets with with sports and finance mm-hmm. that you can look at and say, well, I want that. And, and in Yahoo's case, it's like, well, you can't just buy. You just you know to use your analogy, you can't just buy the tires. Mm-hmm. You got to buy the whole vehicle. Uh, but even even in this day and age where data breaches are treated as commonplace because they are commonplace. This one really stands out both for the sheer number of people involved, and again, for the fact that whether they didn't know, and they were it really wasn't until two weeks ago that Yahoo had figured out what had happened, or they were being misleading, the fact that Verizon said, yeah, we're going to sign over $5 billion to buy you, and it was months later that they found out about this. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It doesn't <laughs> feel good to be Verizon, I don't think. Do you think Verizon? I mean, I don't think they back out of this deal either, but I'm wondering do they, to the extent that loose ends need to be tied up before the deal is taken care of? Um, we were talking right before we started taping about uh, Tim Armstrong, who's the president of AOL, which is now owned by Verizon. He was on CNBC this morning. And when he was asked several times very directly about this, I thought he did a, a, a pretty decent job of towing what is probably the party line, which is no, 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 we're, no one's, you know, because there's this report in the New York Post that you got some executives at Verizon who want to take people's heads off over at yahoo and armstrong is like no, no no we're going through the everything very methodically we're trying to figure out exactly what happened but it seems like they've got the upper hand in terms of leverage if they need it
1: yeah well he can obviously can't make a material disclosure on 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 tv um, you know, but having said that, there's certainly the deal's not done yet. so the information is now out there. They could use that as a bargaining chip to renegotiate the price or the terms or, or, or something along those lines. Like I said, this certainly does seem like material information um, because it would affect not only the integrity of the, the user data but also the propensity for those users potentially to continue as Yahoo members, right? I mean Target obviously suffered dramatically when it's hacked. You know it, it lost customer data. People decided not to shop there anymore. That's, that's very material stuff.
0: Let's move on to the world of retail. Uh, West Elm is the high end furniture company that is part of Williams Sonoma. Uh, and the news this morning in the Wall Street Journal that West Elm, and again, this is a furniture retailer. I'll just read the headline West Elm to launch.
1: Really, really a lifestyle brand that <laughs> happens to sell furniture.
0: Apparently. West Elm to launch its own boutique hotels. Furniture retailer will design, furnish, and market chain of hotels. Guests can buy furnishings online. Boom, <laughs> profit. Let's, let's. You tell me. I, I read this story, and what one of my thoughts after I read it was, okay, West Elm appears to have operated at a, at a relatively high level for some time now, mm-hmm. and maybe the people running West Elm say, you know what, we we deserve credit for that, and we we want. Room to run on our next big idea. Mm-hmm. And here it is. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm going to stipulate all of that, even if I'm going to grant them all of that, the scope of this plan is mystifying to me. It's an interesting idea.
1: I think it I think to be fair, I think it's actually born out of the right place, okay, Which is to say that you know West Elm has been for Williams Sonoma, the lone bright spot for growth over the past five plus years. Um, and we've
0: talked before about Williams Sonoma being among niche retailers uh, in the top half of operators when it comes to the omnichannel approach.
1: Yeah, they've done really well online. Um, you know, more than half their sales now are coming direct to consumer through e-commerce channels. Um, now, where they're running in dif- you know, and, and obviously retail sales, opening stores is lower margin, much lower margin than selling online for a variety of reasons. Right? You can it's expensive to open stores and hold inventory and do all those things. Um, I think the challenge that they're coming up against is that, you know, one of the investing theses underpinning William Sonoma and the West Elm story was that as the sales moved online, overall operating profit margins would expand, and that has proven to be the case. But operating mar- profit margins at the direct-to-consumer segment are, have been falling recently, which I think just speaks to the, you know, there's a lot of competition online, obviously, um, and. There's a lot of promo It's a very promotional environment right now for a lot of retailers, and so that's that's dinging them. So I think the idea that they want to uh, reach more customers without opening stores in order to sell more full priced merchandise, I think that's a let's call that a reasonably competent thesis. Now investing a whole lot of money to open a bunch of hotels it, does that solve that problem? I don't I don't know. I mean, I I, I can foresee you know if people actually do stay at the hotel. And they make an impulse purchase. That's probably going to be a non-promotional price, right? You're buying it because you really like it. Um, but you know, do they have the competence to get people to stay at the hotels? You know, are they trying to make money on it, or is it really more of a marketing? I, there are a lot of open and unanswered questions here. And it seemed like the first five locations they're planning—correct me if I'm wrong—were were Detroit, Savannah, Georgia, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, and. I, it's not a murderer's row of like.
0: <laughs> it's you know, not South Beach. you Yeah, saying? so I,
1: they they ostensibly have a lot of customer data because they're sh- sending out catalogs. They know where people live and so on and so forth. You think they'd put these place these hotels, in places their customers are likely to want to stay in a hotel. So I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but it's an interesting, an interesting solution
0: to a to a real problem. Let me push back on the murderer's row because I think I think you're right. You love Indianapolis. I love. <laughs> Have you ever been to Indianapolis? I haven't. If you go, uh-huh. St. Elmo's Steakhouse. Okay, That's all I'm going to say. I'll make a note. Make a note of that, and, and you'll thank me later. Cause it's, uh, they sell steak? They sell steak and an amazing a shrimp cocktail you will never forget. Ooh. So, if part of the move here is, we want to go boutique hotels, we want to differentiate ourselves, don't you have a better shot of doing that in Indianapolis than you do in Miami? I've never been in Indianapolis. Okay, but <laughs> damn it! Um, w- wouldn't you assume there are more boutique hotels in in Miami than there are in Indianapolis, yeah, Charlotte, or Detroit? Yeah,
1: there's more competition. Certainly, yeah. Savannah they probably stand out in the city. Um, yeah, I, there. Are they incubating something? Are they? Are they? Where are they in the like process of like? Are they? They have a five-year plan for this that they're wedded to. Are they going to test and learn? Are they going to sell these things if they don't work out? I, there wasn't enough information in the article to really dive into that, but um, it's certainly probably questions for um, probably questions for management on the next conference call. I mean, building expensive fixed assets can be expensive, and a lot of the cash is spent up front. And for a company that historically has prided itself. I'm being very cash-generative and using that cash to repurchase shares and pay a dividend, um, using that cash to fund hotel expansion. I mean, hotels are more expensive to build than stores, right? So, they don't want to build stores, but they want to build hotels. hotel. I don't, I don't.
0: So, let's go back to Williams-Sonoma, writ large. What does this do to your thinking about that company? And in particular, that stock. If West Elm has been the driver of growth, or as you said, sort of the lone bright spot in terms of growth, and well, I, now they're going down this route, if you're a shareholder thinking about the next five years for William Sonoma, do you need to be a little bit more cautious about what you're going to get out of West Elm?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would be. Um, the stock has fallen quite a bit over the past year. I think it's down from eighty into the into the forties. So pretty sharp decline. Um, I think the explanation for that has been slowing growth, the deterioration of that margin improvement thesis that I mentioned earlier, and then um, finally their their inventory turns are really slowed. They used to be well up over four per year, and now they're they're down down at three. Um, you know, an inventory for a for a fashion retailer, and obviously these guys aren't fast fashion. So the, the furniture is a lower inventory turn business, but. Um, you know, watching that number decline, it does increase the likelihood of promotional sales and write-downs, things that would further ding profitability. Um, you know, This year, they're trying to slim out their inventory position. They ca- you know, the flip side of that is that you have fewer things in stock, and when you don't have things in stock, people will often not bother following through on the purchase. Um, so, there's probably some, some risk of downside surprise there. I, I think it would certainly indicate that they're thinking outside the box about ways to reinvigorate their growth and profit margins. I don't know if this, this works. I don't think the, the shares Right now probably are neither attractive nor catastrophically overpriced either. So it it is what it is.
0: Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com from Faisal al Bahar in Dubai, who writes, After college I started working with my family's business. We distribute and service laboratory technology for the analytical, life science and informatics markets. So, you know, typical mom and pop shop <laughs> uh, in the <laughs> Gulf region. I hope to convince my family to start investing, and I wanted to get your opinion on where I could start. My younger sister and I have a different investment thesis from my mother and father, and since I am employed full-time, I cannot regularly follow the market, so I was a little reluctant to take charge of such a project, considering the risk. Where would you recommend that I start? My father and I began looking at ETFs recently from following your program in the past, I can see that the S&P 500 has been a solid performer in the past. Is now the right time to invest, It uh, though?" Uh, great question. And, and sort of a flip on a question we get frequently, which is, how do I get my kids investing? Um, so I love uh, that Faisal and his sister are sort of uh, taking the investing reins and, and trying to bring in their parents. And I'm sure this is not the only area of life where He and his sister have a different um, view on things than their parents. Sure, as parents and children tend to have different views. Um, Where should he uh, start uh, with his father? Because I think that uh, if you, if you know, granted you're starting from different points, you uh, you probably want to just, for the sake of your relationship with your parents, you want to try and meet in the middle as soon as possible. Well, so the
1: other hat that I wear here at the Fool is is I work on our, our products. And there's a great book, um, Simon Sinek, Start with Why, right? And I think we're very fast. The, the name of the book is
0: Start with Why. Start with Why.
1: Um, we're very fast, both in the product world and the investing world, to jump to solutions. Like, oh, I've got a great, hey, I'm thinking about investing. Oh, I've got a great stock pick for you. Um, and in some ways, we traffic in that on this show from time to time. Um, but I think it's important in a situation with a question like this why? Why are your parents getting started investing? Like, what's the point of doing it? I, I think we all accept. That the premise of investing in capital to save and grow your money and invest in things that are, are promising is, is a good one, but why are you doing it? Because, for example, if, if um, mom and dad are headed towards a very comfortable retirement and don't need to grow their capital at all, that's a very different investing reason from someone who is not headed towards a comfortable retirement and does need to grow their money at seven percent. Someone 8%. in their twenties. Yeah, absolutely. So why why are you doing this? And when you write down why you're doing it. Um, that will help inform you where is the best place to start and in what amount. You know, For example, if you're doing this to learn about other businesses, that's a very different reason from you're doing this to secure your retirement, and you would proceed accordingly. Um, you know, obviously, if you're just investing to try to grow your savings, index funds are a great place to start. If you're investing for some other reason, there might be a better place to go. But that's what I'd encourage anybody who's getting started investing, whether you're a kid, a young adult, older adult, why? Why? Why are you doing it? And um, figure out how much money, you know, what kind of returns you need to make. And once you know those two things, engineering the types of things and types of investment approaches you should take become a lot easier. It becomes a much simpler question.
0: Well, and I think when, you know, once you get to that point, if, as we've talked about before, you start to look at your own areas of expertise. If if you are going the route of individual stocks, and in this case, if they're in the business of, you know. Laboratory technology, informatics, informatics, life sciences. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, Faisal and his family have, um, as Liam Neeson would say, a very particular set of skills.
1: Well, now the flip side of that, right, is if your entire business and savings are tied up in one industry, why you might be investing might be for diversification. And in that case, you don't want any exposure to that industry because if it's all correlated and something were to happen, well, then your business has gone under and your savings have deteriorated. And now you're in a worse-off position. It's a very common mistake that a lot of investors make. Um, You know, retail investors in particular are far more likely to own too much stock in their employer, and they are far more likely than the average person to own stocks near their hometown. So, if it's headquartered near where you live, you're more likely to own that stock as a retail investor. Um, You know, that's sort of a a degradation of the "buy what you know" principle, or no oversimpl. But people need to be careful. I mean, if you're too correlated in one thing or one place, it can really Bite you, you know. People who who owned Enron stock and
0: worked for Enron, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is there it, without divulging too much about your own personal finances, is there anything in your portfolio where you look and you go, either ah, I got a little too much of this industry, or boy, I don't have anything in X. Um, I, the the, per, the example I always think of in these in these situations is Ron Groves, who just you know is the first to say I don't really know anything about energy. And therefore, I don't have any energy in my uh, in my portfolio.
1: Yeah, I personally, I mean, I review my personal holdings on a quarterly basis. I don't tend to get more um, granular than stocks, bonds, cash. Um, I have a large number of you know diversified index or fund holdings, and then I sort of use my stock selection prowess to the extent I have any um, to sort of add some. Excitement uh, when when it happens when it works out is that um, what you're seeking when you're investing? Excitement.
0: What? Why do I <laughs> why do I invest? Entertainment. Entertainment. <laughs> excitement that only day trading can bring.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think as long as you're you know, if you can get as granular as stocks, bonds, cash, and you can tie back your exposures to some grander plan, i.e., you know, when I retire in 25 to 30 years, I want to have X amount of dollars. I can work backwards and know how much I need to have today in order to um, make it likely that I get to that goal. Then you can always keep track of how well you're doing against where you need to be. And when you're benchmarking yourself like that, you know, if you're like, I can say right now I'm ahead of my goal. And knowing that, I'm not too worried, certainly not too worried about my granular exposures or the day to day fluctuations of the market. Were I behind my goal, I would probably be more worried about that sort of thing
0: because you're ahead of your goal, you know what you can do? Take on a little bit more excitement. I might
1: open a hotel in Detroit.
0: <laughs> you can follow Tim Hansen on Twitter. You should follow Tim Hansen on Twitter. Thanks Thank for you, being Chris. here.
1: Chris. Appreciate that.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.